1: Hey, y'all. Before we jump into today's show, we have got a show that we think you will love. You've probably heard us talk about them before. It's True Crime Guys. And we want you to stick around for their promo so you can hear a little bit about their show. And then definitely go search for them and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. They're like, they're kind of like the dude version of us, I feel like. Like, I feel very similar. We have similar senses of humor and Their show is so good. You will love it.
0: Check it out. Hello, I'm Lauren. And I'm Michael. And we're 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 True true crime. Crime Guys. What are you doing? Oh, I thought we were doing the thing where we said the same thing at the same time. Since when do we talk over each other? Uh, like every episode for the last four and a half years. Fair enough. We've also been known to add a little bit of levity and bring new perspectives on history's most infamous killers, such as Gacy, Ramirez, BTK, and many others, as well as a healthy dose of lesser known cases, all while being the oldest true crime podcast you've never heard of. I'm sure that's a good thing. Debatable. I'm in Las Vegas, and I'm in North Carolina. That doesn't stop us from getting together every week to discuss our favorite topic, Moida. I also use my background as a musician to make an original intro. Song for almost every episode, like this one about Jody Arias. Jody, Jody, bitch, you're the scariest. So if you like true crime, obviously you do. If you're listening to this and you don't mind a little bit of banter mixed in, give us a listen. Alibis hilarious. These killers would not be idolized the making this podcast. Although many of them have physical and mental trauma in their backgrounds that explain some of their erratic behavior, they are, generally speaking, mostly narcissistic comebacks. We prefer to spend the majority of the time discussing how pathetic they are.
1: Hello, and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host Torella, and I'm your better, prettier, younger host Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at KillerQueensPodcast. And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, guys. Welcome back. Yay. Welcome back. I wanted to sing it, too. Oh, did you really? I did. Oh. If you've never been here before, also welcome for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. We are covering a case that fucking sucks. Yeah. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be enjoyable. <laughs> Just because of what we're talking about. But I think if you knew at all what you were getting yourself into with a true crime podcast, you probably expected it to not be. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I think we should go ahead and just like tell everybody, like, go ahead, have your windows open. Mm -hmm. If you're driving, you're going to want to roll a window down and like just be on the lookout for things that you can throw out the window that you don't need to go back and pick up, especially for driving, because those are gone. Right, absolutely. You and are going to everything in your car or your house is going to be gone. Yep, yeah, pitched for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, it's wrong place, wrong time for these items. Their own fault. Yep, you got to yeet them right out. Yep, your hands are tied. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I also did want to mention we've gotten some messages on where to submit case requests. Oh, great. Great idea. Yeah. Yeah, so if you go to our website, which is killerqueenspodcast.com, there is a case submission form on there and that is the perfect place to do it because unfortunately, if you send it like on Instagram, Facebook, in a in email to us, they get lost and we just uh, having them on the case submission form is going to be the best place because we can keep them all there, we get organized and then we don't miss anybody. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, yeah, they just like we don't know what happens to them, you know. Yeah, we want to be like Aerosmith. We don't want to miss a thing. So Exactly. And if you want to go directly to the link, it's killerqueenspodcast.com slash case submission, all one word, like together. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Also, before we get started, just really quickly we want to let you know that if you want some bonus episodes <sighs> and add okay. free episodes, why are we doing episodes? I don't know. I wish <laughs> it felt I felt right in the moment. And then now you can Yeah, got to but once I did it once, I was like, well, now I gotta do it again because it's a whole thing. But you can check out our Patreon. So for as little as $3 a month, you can get all these episodes ad-free. And if you move up higher in the tiers, you can get tons of bonus episodes. Three a week there. And then we also do our True Crime Rewind show on Spotify's new app, Green Room where you can actually physically talk with us about cases. Yes. And that's on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Central. Yes. It's going to be great, guys. Yeah, we learned in the last one that I can't do time zone differences, so I'm just going to stick with 8 p.m. Central. It's the easiest one for us, yes. Yeah, exactly. So there's that. You can go to patreon.com slash Pod if you want to check it out. And uh, with that, we'll get right into the episode. Oh, still doing it. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, we wanted to thank Karen Cervantes, Ina Stina. I'm so sorry. I'm letting you do. It. I'm not trying. Paul's daughter? I don't know how to say it. I I know it's it's got some some characters that I'm not familiar with. I'm so, so sorry. Yeah. And Jill Nensteel. For requesting this case. And we also want to thank Britt for writing it up for us. Yay, thank you. And we do have a trigger warning for domestic violence, just to let you know. Yes. And of course, if this, if a case like this that, you know, has a lot of domestic violence, anything that we talk about, we do trigger warnings before. So if that's not something that you can sit through, that's totally fine. We can catch you on the next episode. But you just letting you know. Yeah, absolutely. No. Yes. So, we begin today on Saturday, October 27th, 2007 in Bolingbrook, Illinois. Cassandra Cales is visiting with her 23-year-old sister Stacy Peterson at the home that she shared with her husband, 53-year-old Drew Peterson. Big age difference, yeah, there. you heard that right. And there are four children, ages two, four, twelve, and fourteen. So the two youngest were biological, and the two older are from Drew's third marriage. So Stacy is actually his fourth wife. At around eleven thirty pm, Cassandra left the Peterson home, and the two sisters made plans to meet over at Cassandra's the next morning at 10 am to paint. When Cassandra did not hear from Stacy the next day, she got super worried. Stacy had recently confided in close family members that she was planning to leave Drew. So, Cassandra tried calling Stacy all day and by 11 p.m., she'd had enough and drove over to Stacy's house. And she noticed that neither Stacy or Drew's cars were parked in the driveway. She rang the doorbell and was surprised when one of the children answered and told Cassandra that he and his siblings were home alone. He said that Stacy and Drew had gotten into a big fight that morning. And Stacy had left and Drew was out looking for her. Cassandra obviously gets more concerned and calls Drew's phone. And Drew answers and says, He's been out all day looking for Stacy with no luck. Which also, if that's true, wouldn't he have called her sister to be like, hey, did she go to your house? Because it right. seems like that would be the first place she'd go because they were really close. Yeah. Call family members asking, like, hey, did you did anybody see her that I exactly? Yeah. So at 11.45 p.m., Cassandra drove to the Downers Grove Police Department to file a missing person's report on Stacy. The police told her that she had to file the report back in Bolingbrook. She was initially reluctant because Drew was a sergeant and a 30-year veteran of the Bolingbrook Police Department. So obviously, she's like, this is not going to go anywhere because he's one of their— Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, it's a conflict of interest. Exactly. But she obviously had no other choice, so at 1 a.m. on October 29th, Cassandra filed a missing persons report in Bolingbrook. She returned back to the Peterson home at 2.30 a.m. and noticed that both Stacy and Drew's cars were now in the driveway. When Drew was confronted again with questions about Stacy's whereabouts, he said that Stacy had called him that evening to tell him that she was leaving him and the kids and that she had left her 2002 Pontiac Grand Prix at Clow International Airport. Drew claimed to have walked to the airport to retrieve her car. And it's like a half mile, I think, away from their house or something. Like, it's not very far. Right. Between 3 and 4 a.m., Cassandra then filed an additional missing persons report with the Illinois State Police. So you might be shocked to learn that this was not the first time for something mysterious to happen to one of Drew Peterson's wives. And, of course, like we mentioned, Stacey was wife number four. (sighs) Let's get into a little bit of Drew Peterson's history. Drew Walter Peterson was born January 5th, 1954, in Oak Park, Illinois, to Donald and Betty Peterson. His parents were married for 38 years until Donald's passing. Betty later married Albert Morphy, Donald's boss at Northern Illinois Gas Company. Whoa. That's that's a little close to home. (laughs) Drew has one stepbrother, Thomas Morphy. Drew graduated from Willowbrook High School in Villa Park, Illinois in 1972, and in 1974, he briefly attended College of DuPage, I think is how you say that, right? Shortly after, he moved to Falls Church, Virginia, and joined the Army to train as a military police officer. He received an honorable discharge in 1976, and then he ends up joining the Bolingbrook Police Department in 1977. Drew married his high school girlfriend, Carol Brown, in 1974. And Carol actually, unfortunately, suffered a miscarriage early into their into her marriage. And the couple went on to welcome two sons, Stephen Paul Peterson and Eric Drew Peterson. After only a few years of marriage, Carol found out that Drew was having affairs while undercover. He even had an affair when she was pregnant, and she decided to leave him. Their divorce was finalized in 1980, and they went their separate ways. And this is going to be a a theme. Drew Peterson cannot keep it in his pants. No, he has a pattern of throwing his cat around. Yeah, exactly. In 1980, Drew met 20-year-old Kyle Pyrie when she was working at a local gas station. He responded to a call at her work that someone had driven off without paying for gas. For whatever reason, she was smitten with Drew and she just thought he was like so charming and. They quickly started dating and they became engaged after only four months. Wow! And Kyle said after they got engaged, that's when he changed. And he started to become extremely controlling. She couldn't do anything without his permission. He went with her to a family funeral. And then the whole evening, he accused her of kissing an ex-boyfriend that also attended the funeral. Which, like, you were there, dude. Why would I do that in front of you? Right. And also guilty conscience much? Uh, Exactly. After about an hour-long interrogation, he finally said, no, I never saw you do anything. I just figured if I accused you of it, it's a police tactic that you would confess to it if you had done it. Wow, that's a great way to instill doubt. There's a lack of trust there, obviously, but also fear. Like, really? You didn't see anything happen, but you thought, I will just accuse her of this. So if it did happen, she'll confess to it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's being like, I'm going to gaslight you until you admit to something that you know full well you didn't do. Exactly. <laughs> okay, dude. Perfect. Four months later, one altercation between Kyle and Drew ended with with him throwing her over a coffee table and pinning her to the ground. Kyle went to her parents' house, and her stepfather urged her to call the police, which she did. The police did send an officer over to her house to take down her complaint, but apparently the officer was a friend of Drew's. Surprise, surprise. And he convinced her not to press charges, and that it was a one-time situation. Kyle still broke off the engagement, but Drew was not letting go. He would pull Kyle over constantly and give her tickets for things like bald tires or their her taillights <laughs> weren't bright enough. Wow, dude. Like that's not going to get her back, A. And B. No. Why are you being such a little shithead? Like she just doesn't want to be with you for obvious reasons. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like, because this is also a theme for him, he arrests people who he's, you know, been in relationships with or in relationships with while he's talking them. I kind of feel like, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure you can make points either way, but I just kind of feel like it's obviously a conflict of interest for him to be pulling her over, for him to be arresting her because he's got reasons for that. He has a motive mm-hmm. to do that because he's trying to get back at her. So I kind right. of feel like you should never be the one to arrest somebody that you are going through a breakup with or, you know, like, oh, no. what the hell? Exactly. Three months after harassment finally ended when Kyle's parents called the pol- the chief of police and detailed the harassment she was enduring. And they said that they would take s- further steps if they didn't stop. Drew finally quit stalking Kyle in 1982 when he met Victoria Vicki Connolly in a bar. They married only six months later. This is clearly another pattern with him. He moves very quickly, which is something that controlling narcissistic people do. Exactly. It's like textbook.
0: Mm-hmm. You gotta lock it
1: in. Absolutely. Vicky had one daughter, Lisa, coming into the marriage, and the couple opened a bar in Romeoville, Illinois. I love that name. Yeah. Vicky has stated that during their marriage, Drew pulled a gun on her three or four times, once putting it to her head and telling her that he would kill her then himself. He said that he would kill her and make it look like an accident. Vicky's daughter, Lisa, later testified that Drew was very controlling with her mother. Vicky wasn't allowed to have any friends. She wasn't allowed to talk to any family members. Vicki and Lisa stated that there, there were bugs in their house and business. He would put microphones and he would hide them all around and tape all of their conversations. I mean, this is just a person who is obviously somewhat unhinged, but He's got all these police, like, tactics and equipment, I guess, like, available to him. Yeah. And I feel like he would know how to make things look like an accident, you know, based Mm -hmm. on, like, investigations and, you know, things he's seen around the police station. Like, that's got to be absolutely terrifying. Well, I mean, there are so many memes about the fact that people who are super into true crime, like, oh, I could perform the perfect crime and never get caught because we know so much, right? But we know so very little compared to an actual police officer mm-hmm. who has seen it firsthand. I mean, he's, it sounds like he, because he's been in, at the point that we are talking about, 30 some odd years, maybe less, maybe more. Mm-hmm. He's done a lot of different stuff too. It's not like he just worked the desk the entire time. He's, right been in action, he's been undercover. He's been all kinds of mm. in all kinds of different situations. So he knows a ton. Well, and he's also got obviously friends in the department who are like, "Oh, absolutely. You know, Drew's a good guy. He couldn't do anything like that. So let's just blow it over. These are just women making shit up about him because they're jealous or whatever." Yeah, multiple women who have nothing to do with the other and clearly it's just made oh, I can't. I cannot. I cannot. In 1985, Drew was fired and also indicted on charges of official misconduct and failure to report a bribe in connection with an unsanctioned undercover investigation that he attempted. The Bolingbrook Fire and Police Board found him guilty of all those charges, as well as disobedience and conducting a self-assigned investigation. And Drew, of course, denied all of these allegations. The criminal charges against him were eventually dropped and he got his job back. Oh thank god. What a great what a great idea. Let's bring him back on. Exactly. Like this is bribes, this is police misconduct, this is not handling an investigation properly. Like what are the there's so many repercussions that could come from this behavior. But mm-hmm. let's let him continue to do investigations and undercover and whatever. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. And some have even said that the special prosecutor assigned to the case missed the speedy trial term. So, technicalities, but. Right, and that's, I mean, that's how they get them sometimes, I don't know. After nine and a half years of marriage, Vicky found out that Drew was having an affair with a 29-year-old accountant, Kathleen Savio. Again, here's that theme that we talked about mm-hmm. where Drew just cannot help himself. He has to, and I watched, it was called I Lived with a Killer. And it centered around Steven Peterson, the oldest son. He was kind of telling his story. And he was like, with my dad, it was like, well, your 10 years are up. Mm-hmm. I gotta move on to somebody else. Yeah, because it really was like pretty much 10 years. hmm Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, with him, it wasn't a seven year itch. It was a 10 year itch. But mm-hmm. and like, and he always he kind of seemed to go for much younger women too. hmm Absolutely. Vicky and Drew decided to separate and finalize their divorce by February 18th, 1992. On May 3rd, 1992, Drew and Kathleen married. So he had, Mm -hmm. I mean, a little over a year, I guess. Yeah. The couple would go on to have two sons, Thomas in February of 93 and Christopher in August 94. The couple seemed to have it all, but after almost 10 years of marriage, as usual, Drew returned to his typical serial cheating ways. And in 2003, he responded to a call at the local Spring Hill Suites and he met 17-year-old Stacy Kales. And he was 46 at the time. Gross. 17. Also, this was in 2001, not 2003. Did I say 2003? Yeah. And also you oh, said sorry. they had Thomas in February of 1993, but it was January. So. Jesus Christ. Wow. That's okay. That's okay. Things happen, but you listen. Know, I just, numbers are hard as are words. I'm sorry. Yeah. I wanted to point that out so that we don't get DMs about it. So don't no, feel the need to you. correct us. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I know the error of my ways. I can't read. I'm sorry. Yeah. Whoopsie. Whoopsies. But don't you think as a police officer, Drew would know 17... I know the age of consent is different in each state, but still. But st- yeah. And like, I would hope that any adult knows that like, when you're 46, you don't go fucking date a 17-year-old. That is absolutely disgusting. That's a child. It's, it's a child. How did he not get like, and it wasn't a secret either. Like, everybody at the police department knew they were together. Mm-hmm. So it's like, we're just going to turn our back to statutory rape? Right, exactly. Apparently. Apparently, Stacy Ann Kales was born January 20th, 1984 in Downers Grove, Illinois to Anthony and Christine, who went by Christy Kales. They were two people who were said to be more interested in partying than parenting, even though they would go on to have five children: Jessica, Stacy, Cassandra, Lacey, Yelton, and Tina, Christine's daughter from a previous relationship. In December of 1983, 6 weeks before Stacy was born, The family home caught fire. Christine, then about eight months pregnant with Stacey, barely escaped. And absolutely heartbreakingly, her two-year-old daughter, Jessica, did not. Her body was found behind the living room couch as if she had been hiding. That is so Mm. sad. Oh, my God. That is so sad. Despite their violent marriage, issues with drugs and alcohol, and neglect and abuse of their children, Anthony and Christine decided to have more children. Why not? Which is perfect. On June 10th, 1985, Christine gave birth to another girl, Cassandra. Two years later, another girl, Lacey, followed. Lacey unfortunately died of SIDS in October of 1987. Now, I don't know if I'm just got I've got my investigative hat on or something, but I wonder if it was SIDS. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. That doesn't sit well These with These are me. not responsible people, right? Right. For their conditions. Yeah. Friends and family members said that Anthony and Christine never recovered from Lacey's death and that the kids were mostly on their own. Christine would disappear for weeks at a time, and records show that Christine was in and out of psych wards over the years. She was arrested for shoplifting beer and cigarettes in 1990 and was arrested for DUI. Hmm. By 1990, the couple had two foreclosure suits filed against them, and Anthony filed for divorce. Records show that Christine initially contested the filing, but after repeatedly missing court dates, Anthony was awarded sole custody of Yelton, Stacy, Cassandra, and Tina. The family moved around a lot, and Anthony remarried five years later. When she was in high school, Stacy went to live with her older half-sister, Tina. Stacy came out of her difficult childhood a kind and loving person determined to make life better for herself. She even graduated high school early at the age of 16. It's impressive. Doesn't make her an adult, though, guys. It doesn't make her an adult. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like, there's so many ways that could come out. But ugh, that's just such a hard childhood. I, I feel so bad for these children all the way around. Absolutely. In 1998, Christine went missing. She was last seen around 4:30 p.m. in the vicinity of the 2300 block of West 199th Street in Blue Island, Illinois. Stacy's sister Cassandra says that she and her sisters all believe that Christine had been murdered by the man that she was living with at the time. He said Christine left for church and never came back, but she left her purse at his house. And I mean, typically, you're not going to leave your purse if you're going somewhere. Like, that's the one thing you're going to bring with you. Yeah, you need all that stuff. Like, I don't understand why we're still in this day and age. I know this was in 1998, but still, why we still think that I would leave all of my clothes and shoes. It would be hard because I'm obsessed with all, you know, like, I I have things that I, I feel like I need... Day to day, but if I'm leaving, I'm gonna take the important things. I'm gonna take my wallet, I'm gonna take my keys, I'm gonna take my money, my debit yeah. cards, my driver's license, exactly. I'm gonna take all these things. Yeah, the only time I leave my purse at home is if I go like for a walk around the neighborhood or like walk the dogs or right. Absolutely. I won't bring it then. But yeah, if I'm getting in my car, I'm taking my purse because it has my ID in it and yeah, all my stuff. Like, that just doesn't make sense. Now, I know there are some people who don't carry purses and stuff like that, but but you usually have like on the back of your cell phone or something, you have yeah. all of the things that your necessary items. Yeah. But she was a person who did carry a purse. So yeah. The sisters went to the police with their suspicions, but nothing came of it. And Christine is still listed as a missing person today. Poor Cassandra. Mm-hmm. Like first her mom and then her sister. Like it's so awful. Stacy was absolutely devastated about Christine. Friends and family said she never talked about her mom after that. Stacy had dreams of becoming a nurse, so she took a series of odd jobs trying to save for college. And that's when she meets Drew. Neither of them seemed to mind the 30-year age difference because the two quickly started seeing each other behind his wife Kathleen's back. Within weeks of meeting, Drew helped Stacy get a job as a clerk for the village of Bolingbrook, and he would sneak her in and out of his basement and this is when Kathleen and her and their two sons would be upstairs sleeping. Like, That's disgusting. Yes, he would sneak her in. She's 17 at the time. And he'd sneak her into the basement, which was reportedly very creepy looking. It was like super dark. I think they said the walls were like painted black. The bed was all black. There were mirrors all over the walls. Hmm. It was like super weird. But he's bringing her over there to have sex with her. And she's 17. It's gross. Stacy later insisted to friends that Drew had assured her his marriage was over by the time she started seeing him. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you got to wonder, though, as Stacy, like, why do I always have to come to the basement? I don't know. Right, exactly. An anonymous handwritten note eventually tipped Kathleen off to the affair, and the letter or the note reads... Kathy this letter is being sent to you for your benefit at this point in time you are probably aware that your husband is having an affair the girl's name and she is just that a girl is Stacy Yelton born July 17th 1984 resides at 511 Preston Apartment number 129 Bolingbrook Illinois you may already have all this information but if not you will need it to prevent any further embarrassment or and disgrace to you and your family This affair has been going on for several months, and several people have been aware of the situation. Because of her age, 17, and the fact that she is an employee of the village, and because of Drew's age and his occupation, he holds a position of authority over her. Drew could be charged criminally for his intimate involvement with this minor. Village officials, mayor, trustees, and everyone at the police department have complete knowledge of the situation. It has been an ongoing joke within the department. The issue that has been discussed and has been decided to conceal his behavior to protect the village and Drew. Because of his political alliances with Roger Clark and Ken Each, they are protecting themselves from the embarrassment and the liability. The real victims, being you and your family, should be the ones being protected from the embarrassment. This is not the first time in the past year that Drew's immoral and unethical behavior has been concealed. This past summer, Drew allowed the beating of an arrestee who was handcuffed and defenseless. This past fall, Drew was suspected to have planted narcotics, cocaine, on two separate drug raids to obtain a substantial arrest to overshadow his recent behavior, and now his illegal intimate relationship with a minor. Drew has been willing to sacrifice his integrity for his personal gain, who, with total disregard that his actions will embarrass and disrespect his wife and children. Beware whom you talk to within the village administration and within the police department, i.e. mayor, chief, deputy chief, etc., protect yourself and your family. That's awful. Like, can you imagine getting a letter like that and being like, oh my gosh, because I don't know if Kathleen did know. She might have had some suspicions, but I don't think she... Well, and I'm not placing any blame on Kathleen. I don't mean for this to come across as like any other way, but sometimes when you begin a relationship that way where it's hidden from your spouse's significant other, when it starts that way, you might think, well, I mean, they, that's how we started. Maybe he's doing it to me. hmm Yeah. And I mean, he had to have been acting super weird. Distant at the very least, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like, the thing about him is he, he really doesn't, uh, he's really not worried about being found out for affairs. It doesn't seem like. Well, and he's got so much clout as a police officer with everybody else in his pocket, that I'm sure he's like, who cares? Yeah, and again, this is a person who is technically a subordinate, so he could lose his job. He could be criminally prosecuted. She is underage. Like, there are all of these reasons why this is not okay, and it's not like in Friends where Ross is like, well, it's frowned upon. Right, right. This is definitely like, you could get in some serious trouble. But Mm -hmm. he's just like, nobody's going to say anything to me. Like, everybody already knows about it. I am invincible. I'm untouchable. Absolutely. Ugh. So this was enough for Kathleen. She ended up filing for divorce. And the separated couple argued frequently over money and custody of the boys. In 2002, Kathleen got an order of protection against Drew due to domestic abuse. On November 14th, she sent a letter to Will County Assistant State's Attorney Elizabeth Fraggle? I'm not sure. sure. Fraggle Rock, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, expressing her fears that Drew may kill her. And we don't have the entire letter, but there are, there's, you know, some excerpts that we're going to read. So, dear Ms. Fraggle Rock. On three different occasions, I've tried to reach you over the phone regarding child charges I filed against Drew Peterson. When I found out Mr. Peterson was having an affair with a minor at the police department, he began to get very violent by striking me with his hand and chasing me through the house with a police stick. At that time on record, I had to get an order of protection from him. There have been several times throughout my marriage with this man where I ended up at the emergency room for injuries, and I've reported this only to have the police leave my home without filing any reports. On July 5th, Mr. Peterson got into my home with a garage door opener he programmed for himself while I was out of town with my two sons. I was unaware of his presence and was very afraid for my life. He popped out from our living room while I was walking down the stairs with a basket of laundry. I was shocked and dropped all the clothes and stood there asking him to get out. Drew was in a SWAT uniform with his police radio in his ear. He yelled for me to sit down and be quiet. I refused and he pushed me on the stairs. He told me to move down to the third step and not to move or speak. He was very angry that in our divorce, the judge ruled that he would have to pay me child support. Like, what the fuck do you think, dude? Exactly. He told me he didn't want to pay me anything. He pulled out his knife and he kept that he kept around his leg and brought it to my neck. I thought I'd never see my boys again. The list goes on and I understand it's just, it's just part of it, but it needs to stop. That's not—no, that's so—I hate that she felt that way. hmm I mean, wh- how else would she feel, though? I know, because it's just like, well, deal with it. Yeah, exactly. That's how, what she's had to do this whole time. Yeah. My sons and I would like to move away from this area for our safety and sanctity. He knows how to manipulate the system, and his next step is to take my children away or kill me instead. I really would like to know why this man wasn't charged with this unlawful entry and attempt on my life. I'm willing to take any test you want me to take to prove my innocence of charges against me and also any lie detector or test. I really feel Drew is a loose cannon. He is out on the streets of Bolingbrook patrolling and just taking the law into his own hands. I haven't received any help from the police here in Bolingbrook and I am asking for your help now before it's too late. I really hope by filing this charge, it might stop him from trying to hurt us. Hmm. That is so sad. That's really sad. It's like, she's like screaming it from the rooftops. This man is dangerous. I am in fear for my life. hmm And literally falls on deaf ears. Yep. They're like, well, but he's a police officer, so probably not. Right. Kathleen also sent a copy of the letter to a reporter, Walter Jacobson, at Fox Chicago with a cover sheet stating that her story is not your typical domestic dispute, but a story about corruption in Bolingbroke. By the time the letter is sent, Bolingbroke police have responded to 10 domestic disturbance calls at the Peterson home, several for abuse, breaking and entering by Drew, and for Drew failing to return the children on, on time from visitation. Police responded to eight more calls before the couple's divorce was finalized in 2003. Drew has never was never charged with the crime, but police arrested Kathleen for domestic battery twice. She was acquitted of both charges. Now is the time to be throwing shit out of your window. Exactly. So they, that's a total of 18 calls they went on there. hmm Apparently two just for Kathleen, but she was the only one that was arrested. Right, yeah. So 18 calls, two times they arrest Kathleen and she's acquitted. So we know that there was not, uh, there wasn't anything to substantiate that. Exactly. There was nothing to warrant an arrest of her. And they not once arrested Drew or charged so seriously, him. Well, yeah. half the time, they didn't even write up a report. Yeah, they just came out and they were like, hey, man, what's going on? Like, it's basically like a hang sesh. Mm-hmm. All right, see you later. Cool, bye. Yeah. Deal with your bitch wife. <sighs> she keeps calling us and inconveniencing us. Right. Even though this is our fucking job. Okay, whatever. Just fucking horrible. Like, it is horrible. There should be accountability for every one of these officers, too. 100%. No, everybody should be, I'm sure, suspended with pay, but whatever, you know? <laughs> right, yeah. Ugh. Well, and then the Bolingbroke Police Department is going to do an investigation and they will find it, but they're there was do no wrong an internal investigation. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out yeah. we didn't do anything wrong. Well, we had Drew look into it and... Yeah, and Drew says that everything seems fine. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here.
0: Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
1: At one point, Kathleen appealed directly to the Bowling Brook Chief of Police, Mike Calcagno for help, and she had come to know Mike during their marriage to Drew and considered him a friend. Kathleen told her sister that she told Mike, if anything happens to me, it's because Drew killed me. Mm. There was an internal, here we go, (laughs) here we go. There was an internal Bolingbroke Police Department investigation after the July 5th incident. Mike did not officially discipline Drew for that incident or for any other matters regarding Kathleen. Yeah, because why would he? Well, and it's it's kind of like how hospitals, when they have like a nurse or a doctor who's like obviously killing people, you know, like the angel of death kind of stuff or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, here's the thing. We want to avoid any bad publicity. Right. So we will write you a letter of recommendation to any other hospital you want to work at, but you just, just got to get the fuck out of here. GTFO, man. Exactly. And we'll help you get a job. We'll give you a great recommendation. We just don't want you here because that's embarrassing. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> While Kathleen and Drew were going through their difficult divorce, he and Stacy moved in together, and in July of 2003, the couple had their first child, Anthony, named after Stacy's father. By the fall of 2003, Kathy had a boyfriend, a new career path, and a plan. Once her divorce was finalized, she would sell the house and move her boys to nearby Mokina, where after graduating from a nursing program, she would work at St. James Hospital. Now, I have a question. It's, I don't know. I don't think you can answer it. How does Drew have the time to do all this? I don't know. I just don't understand. Like, he's working full-time, probably his police job at this point is just harassing and hassling Kathleen. but Correct, yeah. But he's got his new girlfriend. He's got a new child. He's got, I mean, technically, he's got five other children, but, you know. Yeah, he has like 50 kids because he's been married so many times. Like, right, exactly. Yeah. Like, how does one have the time? I know. I have zero children unless you count my fur babies, which I don't think anybody does. But, um, so I've, well, sure you do. Two children. Mm-hmm. I work full-time and I literally have no time to do anything else. (laughs) I know. Yeah. I remember I dated a guy long time ago and, um, I'd heard some rumblings that he was cheating on me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, when would he do that? Like, there's no possible way he's able to cheat on me because I see him like several nights a week. Like I just don't get, you know, and he works and like all the stuff and he has a kid. So I was just like, there's no way he's cheating on me. Like people are just saying that. And then his fiance, so I guess technically he was cheating on her with me, but I didn't know, called me and was like, he's cheating on both of us and we're engaged. And I was like, I did not know about you. I had no idea. And she's like, no, I know. I know you didn't. But the whole time I was just like, how did he manage to basically live two separate lives? And like, I felt like I was seeing him on a regular basis. I had no idea how he was like, putting that much time into both of these relationships. But he do, did. Do you sleep? Like, how does that happen? Because I have a very, very full schedule. It's like, I'm the Grinch. And I'm like, you know, I have dinner with myself. I can't cancel that like, <laughs> yeah, I've got to watch a bunch of Golden Girls. That's something that I cannot waive that. Got to do it. You know, yeah. I don't get it. I don't get it either. On October 10th, Kathleen and Drew's divorce was finalized, but with a few unresolved issues. Kathleen got custody of the two boys, and Drew was granted weekend visitation. They did have plans to meet on April 6, 2004, to discuss the settlement at a hearing. Her attorney, Harry Smith, said that in the divorce settlement, Kathleen was likely to be awarded the house, child support, maintenance, a percentage of Drew's pension, and cash proceeds from Drew's car wash. But it's such a weird divorce because they went ahead and, like, got the divorce finalized, but knowing that the financial aspect was not settled and they would handle that later. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. Which is super weird. But I guess she agreed to do that. Like, I read that she agreed to do that so that Drew could marry Stacy, And so he did marry her eight days after their divorce was finalized. Oh, he wastes literally no time. No. On February 27, 2004, Drew picked up his two sons from Kathleen for a weekend visit. Drew, Stacy, and the kids went to the shed aquarium on the 29th before attempting to return the boys home that evening around 8 p.m. Kathleen did not answer her, the door or her phone, so Drew and the boys returned to his home for the evening with Stacy. The next day, March 1st, Drew called and left messages for Kathleen throughout the day, but she he did not get a response. He went to work at 5 p.m. and then went to Kathleen's house around 7 p.m. Short shift. <laughs> yeah. He's like, well, I uh, I made a, an appearance, so bye. <laughs> Drew called on two of Kathleen's neighbors, Mary Ponarelli and Steve Carcerano, and a locksmith to gain entry to her home. But he was like, you know what? If she's not there, she wouldn't want me in the house. It's probably not good if I go in the house. Why don't you guys go in the house and check it's- on her? Pretty amazing that he has this attitude now. Uh-huh. When he's right, been yeah. breaking and entering this yeah he's, yeah, he's been breaking into her house and assaulting her, but he's like, you know what? I don't want to, like, disrespect her wishes, so, like, I think yeah. you guys should go in. Red flag number one, bitches. A hundred percent. So Mary and Steve enter the home while Drew is waiting outside, and he ran inside when he heard the neighbors scream. So upstairs, they found Kathleen naked, face down in the bathtub. Her hair was wet, but the tub was completely dry and there was an obvious cut on her head. When Drew came into the bathroom, he was screaming, what am I going to tell my kids? What am I going to tell my kids? Mm-hmm. Drew later produced a handwritten will dated March 2nd, 1997, signed by himself and Kathleen. In the will, each leaves <sighs> all their assets to each other. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, right. Sure, it does. I don't doubt that for one little bitty second. The will's validity is later called into question after reports that Kathleen's divorce attorney said that his client told him that she did not have a will. Well, and if she did have a will, she would have had it drawn up by an attorney, and she had an attorney. So, yeah, exactly. And let's just say, let's just say that this will had been written up and it was valid and whatever. Let's just say it. It's not, but let's say it did. Yeah. After this bitter divorce and everything that she had been through, do you not think that she would have been like, I got to change that will because I don't want Drew to get everything. Right, because she has custody of the kids. So it's not like she's like, okay, well, he's got custody. I want to make sure my kids are taken care of. And And even if she wanted her kids to be taken care of, which I'm sure she would have, she would have left everything in like a trust for them or something. Yeah, and she when I don't know how exactly how old she was at this point, but she's young enough to not have to worry. She didn't have a terminal illness. There's no reason for her to be like, let me make sure. You know what I mean? Like right. later in life, you can have it amended and changed and all these things. But at this point, she's not even thinking about the fact that she could be, she could have been dead at this point. There's no reason. Right. Yeah. And he like, This is also a person who is constantly breaking into her house, harassing Mm -hmm. her, assaulting her. And she's going to be like, but you know what? I really want him to just have everything. I don't think so. Who has anything to gain here? Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Well, and it's handwritten. Like, fuck off, dude. It's handwritten. And I've seen a picture of the will and it looks, I know that it's, you can't really tell somebody's handwriting if they're like male or female, but it looks more to me like a male's handwriting. <laughs> yeah. It might be the eyes wanting to see what it wants to see, but I really think it, I mean, obviously it was true. Yeah. March 20th, 2004, Dr. Brian Mitchell with the Will County Coroner's Office released an autopsy report saying that the cause of Kathleen's death was accidental drowning. Dr. Mitchell notes that Kathleen's hair was soaked with blood from an inch long laceration on her scalp. Her tongue was partially clenched between her teeth, and she had several small abrasions on her body. Despite the coroner's report, many people believe that Drew killed Kathleen and got away with it, but he did have an alibi, which was Stacy and only Stacy. Yeah, that's clearly rock solid, and she wouldn't lie for him, would she? Exactly. On May 7th, 2004, a six person coroner's jury ruled that the manner of Kathleen's death was an accident. While testifying at the hearing, an Illinois state police agent told the jury that investigators found no reason to suspect a homicide. One officer, who personally knew Drew, Drew assured the other jurors that he, which was Drew, was a good man who would never hurt his wife. Okay, but we also have multiple reports. She's written letters to the chief of police and everybody else saying he's dangerous. Or wait, was that Vicki? No, it was Kathleen. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, I'm starting to get like... Because he's violent to everybody. It's awful. He's like, violent to every Yeah. We know that he's broken into her house so many times and threatened to kill her. Like, oh, but he's a good guy. He'd never hurt right. her. Except for those other times, but like, that's fine. 18 crimes. Right. <sighs> okay. Kathleen's family also testified, telling the jury that Kathleen feared Drew, who now stood to financially benefit from her death. No charges were filed in this case at this time. Mm, no. Why would you? Yeah. In January of 2005, Stacey and Drew had a daughter, and they named her Lacey after Stacy's late sister. Stacy also adopted the two sons that Drew had shared with Kathleen, and she treated them like they were her own. Drew and Stacy's marriage was frequently rocky. After Lacey was born, Stacy ended up having a tummy tuck, breast enhancement surgery, and LASIK, which were all gifts from Drew. That's sweet. In September of 2006, Stacy's half-sister Tina died of colon cancer at the age of 31. Goodness gracious. I mean, golly, this poor girl's life, like it's just been one hit it's after the, another. The family, my gosh. Yeah. Stacy was said to have been completely devastated by her death, and she went through a period of depression. It was around then that Stacy began to reevaluate her marriage. She wanted to become a better person, so she started paying more attention to her appearance. She took her kids to Bible study. She started working as a sales rep for Avon. And that was so that she could spend more time with the kids. Like she really loved being with the kids. But of course, none of these things sit well with Drew because he's got to be in control, right? Complete control, right? Yeah. Stacey's aunt, Candace Aiken, visited around the middle of October 2007. Stacey mentioned during that visit that she was going to leave Drew. Just a few weeks later, on October 26th, Stacey told Drew she wanted a divorce. Stacey's friend and neighbor, Sharon Bychowski, said that after she told Drew, she was calm and cool and she said, I am already dead. He's going to kill me. Two days later, she disappeared. My God. I mean, it's just like they know exactly what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. It's just terrifying. I feel so awful for them because the fear you have to like, you know what's going to happen and you know that like, you're not going to be able to be there to care for your children. You know that it's happened to somebody before you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Just living in total fear and you know that nobody's going to help you because he's a police officer and the police officers at that station are not going to listen to you. So terrible. You have nowhere to turn. I know. What a helpless place to be. I know. Illinois State Police interview Drew regarding Stacy's disappearance, and they asked to look at both of his vehicles. He gives them access to the GMC Denali, but not the Pontiac Grand Prix. Drew claims that the night before Stacy disappeared, she told him she was going to visit her grandfather in the morning. He said that when he woke up the next morning around 10, she was gone. He then dropped off the kids with neighbors and went out to run errands. Drew requested the evening off from work around 2 p.m. and then picked up the kids and took them to McDonald's. Drew said that after he returned home with the children that Stacy called him to tell him that she was leaving him for another man. Stacy's friends and family are all frantic at this point trying to locate her, and they knew that she wanted to leave Drew, but she would never, ever leave her kids. Never. Yeah, I mean, that's not crazy to think. Like, why would she? I mean, she was such a loving, doting mother. Exactly. And he drew was saying that she took is so bizarre that she took her bikini, the deed to the house, and $25,000. And she was using all of those things to what start a new life with this other man. Mm -hmm. Like she for sure took her bikini. That's so ridiculous. And the deed to the house. What is that going to do? Like, right, ridiculous. Two days after Stacy's disappearance, Drew's half brother Tom attempted suicide. Reports later indicate that Tom confessed to a friend that he believed he had helped Drew dispose of Stacy's body the night she disappeared. Tom would later testify that on October 27th, Drew had showed up at Tom's house to give him a ride to a job interview at the nearby Meyer store. Instead, Tom or Drew told Tom to Remington Lake Parks. Lakes Park. Drew then began to discuss Stacy with Tom. He claimed that Stacy was cheating on him and that he had to take care of the problem. So it's okay for you to cheat, mm-hmm. but Stacy is not allowed to cheat. I'm confused. Well, exactly. And this is a very like, how dare you? I'm in control. I'm the one who makes the decisions. Like, absolutely. Yeah. Drew asked Tom if he loved him enough to kill for him. Tom replied that he loved him, but he couldn't live with himself if he killed somebody. Drew asked if he could live with himself with knowing about it. Tom said that he could, that he always assumed Drew had killed Kathleen. This is the craziest conversation that's ever taken place. Uh, Yeah. Drew drove Tom home, and a few hours later, Tom called Drew and said that he couldn't be involved with his plan, and Drew said that he could respect that. The next day, Drew drove Tom to a park off of Weber Road and gave him a cell phone and said to hold on to it, but not to answer it. Drew then left, and about 45 minutes later, the phone rings a few times, displaying Stacy as the caller. Within an hour of the calls, Drew returned to the park and he picked up Tom. He then asked Tom to help him move something at home. They drove to the Peterson home where Drew led Tom to a large blue barrel, like it's a like barrel-looking container in his bedroom. They moved the large container down the stairs, out of the house, and into the Denali. And Tom later described the container as feeling warm to the touch He said it weighed about 120 pounds. And he also said that Drew told him to be really, like, careful about, like, the angle that he held it at because he didn't want it to spill in the house. Mm. Oh, my God. At some point, Drew gave Tom some money and told him this never happened. The next day, Tom called Drew on the phone and told him that he wanted to hang himself. Drew tells him not to worry. That night, Tom began drinking and overdosed on prescription pills. The state police go and speak with Tom in the hospital after Drew visits. He was offered immunity by Will County State's Attorney, James Glasgow. The police recorded a phone call between Tom and Drew, where Drew ordered Tom to not talk to the press or the police, and he warns him about discussing things on the phone. They actually are able to corroborate Tom's story a little bit because he told the police that he was drunk at the time that this was happening. And that Drew drove him to Starbucks. He was like, we need to get you a coffee because mm-hmm. you're drunk. And this was he like— sober you up. Yeah. yeah, when they were at the park. And he was like holding Stacy's phone. And the park that they drove to, or like the area that they drove to with Stacey's phone and all that, was near a guy that she was supposedly seeing at this time. So he's very good at framing people too. Mm-hmm. But they do verify with the security footage at the Starbucks— that Drew Peterson's car drove through the drive-through and ordered a coffee with vanilla, and they verified. I don't know how this is possible, but they verified that it was the only coffee with vanilla that whole day. How is that's that possible? Insane. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. I feel like that's probably not right. But they said it looked like Drew's car. Drew Peterson was driving, so they were able to verify that that he took him to get a coffee, and so they mm-hmm. felt like he was telling the truth. On November 1st, police executed a search warrant on Drew's home. The warrant allowed police to search the home and the family's two vehicles. Six days later, Drew appeared before a Will County grand jury and exercised his Fifth Amendment right. Drew was then officially labeled as a suspect in Stacy's disappearance. Hmm. Authorities then announced that they're going to look back into the 2004 death of Kathleen. A judge ordered the exhumation of Kathleen's body from Queen of Heaven Cemetery in Hillside. The exhumation petition states that the one-inch gash on the back of her head would not have been enough to render her unconscious and cause her to drown. The petition also questioned the blood pattern in the tub, arguing that it wasn't consistent with water slowly draining from the tub the way investigators in 2004 assumed it had. Will County State's attorney, James Glasgow, publicly stated that the crime scene evidence of Kathleen's death appeared to show that her death may have been staged to look like an accident, and her body was exhumed on November 12th, and the police at the time, I mean, again, obviously, they're just like, well, it's Drew Peterson, so whatever, but the investigator that, or like the detective that was there had, I believe they said he had never done a homicide at that point. And so he was relying on the crime scene tech and the crime scene tech was like, yeah, it looks like an accidental drowning to me. And he's like, cool. So then when they go to the coroner and the coroner is doing the autopsy, the coroner just used that information and didn't do a thorough autopsy because they were like, well, that's a waste of time. This was an accident. So I'll just write it as an accident. Goodness gracious just so ridiculous. Yeah. Bolingbroke police announced that they had suspended Drew without pay pending an unrelated internal affairs investigation. Drew handed in his letter of resignation just shy of his 30th anniversary with the department, and one day before he was supposed to meet with the internal affairs investigators. Drew retired with more than $72,000 annually in pension benefits. On December 10th, Plainfield minister, Pastor Neil Shorey, revealed that on August 31st, 2007, eight weeks before her disappearance, Stacy met with the pastor at her request. She claimed that she had personal, detailed knowledge that Drew killed Kathleen. Stacy said that the night of February 28th, Stacy woke up and Drew was gone. She checked the house and couldn't find him. She found him standing in front of the washing machine, dressed in all black and holding a bag. Drew then put the clothes he was wearing in the washer and, attempt- and emptied the bag into the washer as well, which looked like women's clothing. Drew told Stacy that he had hit Kathleen on the back of the head and that he made her death look like an accident. Drew then coached her on exactly what to say during an investigation. For hours and hours, she said they sat at the kitchen table and he just coached her. Mm-hmm. And the other fucked up thing about this is when the police did go to talk to Stacy. Drew was like, Hey, she's really shook up about this. So I need to be present during this investigation. Well, yeah, they did it at their house. Mm-hmm. And Drew was able to be there while Stacey was being interrogated, which is a direct violation of protocol. Yeah. You always separate people. And he's like Lookin finishing. Drew, yeah. He's finishing her sentences, he's touching her. She had to have been so intimidated. Well, yeah. Like, and you're not even letting her answer all the questions, so you don't know what her answers would be without Drew there. Exactly. He's leading her. (laughs) Yeah. On February 21st, Dr. Larry Bloom, an independent pathologist who performed one of the autopsies on Kathleen, ruled her death as a homicide. A Will County judge granted a request by Kathleen's family to have her estate reopened in preparation for a possible wrongful death suit against Drew. On January 23rd, 2008, Drew and his attorney, Joel Brodsky, called into the show of Chicago radio personality Steve Dahl, who had been making fun of Drew since the case began. He was like doing a bunch of Drew Peterson impressions. (laughs) Joel suggested that Steve host an on-air, quote, dating game with Drew the following day, and they would call it When a Date with Drew. But WJMK managers and Steve decided not to go through with it. They were like, actually, that's kind of like probably not a good look because his current like Drew was saying, of course, that his current wife had left him for another man. And he's like, well, I'm not going to live the rest of my life just like alone. So, yeah, somebody can win a date with me. Like, let's do it. But obviously the public was like, no, she's missing. And we think he had something to do with it. Yeah, I mean, how disgusting. Like, yes. that is in such poor taste. Absolutely. It's tone-deaf, gross. In December of 2008, Drew's publicist, Glenn Seelig confirmed that he was engaged to a 23-year-old, Christina Raines. She would have been his fifth wife. On January thirtieth, two 2009, it was made public that Christina had moved out of Drew's house. Her father, Ernie Raines, had issued an ultimatum to his daughter out of concern about the way Drew tried to control her and what he feared Drew would do. She moved out of the Peterson home when she came to her senses, calling the engagement a publicity stunt designed to keep Drew in the media spotlight. Christina later stated that Drew gave her a, gave her jewelry belonging to his former wives.
0: Yeah.
1: <sighs> yeah, disgusting. He's like, well, I mean, they're not using it anymore, so. Yeah, I mean, that's a way to save money, right? <sighs> she also claimed that he actually tried to show me the trick of how to snap someone's neck within seconds. That's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Ugh. He is just the worst. He is the worst. Absolute worst. And he was very like publicity hungry. He was always going on like talk shows and stuff and his attorney mm-hmm. was like do not talk about the case, but he cannot. He stop. loved it. Yeah. He loved it. And I mean you can see on his face the way uh-huh. that he yeah, how much He's just how he so narcissistic happy he is. Yeah, yeah. May 7th, 2009, Drew was finally arrested and charged with two counts of murder and the death of Kathleen. Bail was set at $20 million. In July of 2010, Judge White ruled that Drew would remain in the Will County Jail for the remainder of his trial and appeals process. Prosecutors argued that he could pose a danger if released, and I think they're right. Mm Mm-hmm. It was revealed that hearsay statements indicating that Drew killed two of his wives were not reliable enough for a jury to hear at his trial. After presiding over a lengthy hearing, Judge White issued a four-page sealed ruling that prosecutors proved Drew killed both Kathleen and Stacy quote, by a preponderance of the evidence, but nearly all statements attributed to Stacy quote, do not provide sufficient safeguards of reliability. The standard of proof in homicide cases is as we all know beyond a reasonable doubt. Preponderance of the evidence is the standard for fact-finding on questions of admissibility of evidence even in a criminal case. Stacy's statements were crucial to the prosecution's case as it lacked significant direct evidence. I mean there was no physical evidence that put Drew at the crime scene. Mm -mm. because detectives didn't collect any evidence because they assumed it was an accident. This is terrible. I don't mean it to sound this way, but it's like this guy, he's killed two of his wives. He's had like so many marriages. It's kind of hard to like keep track. For a second, I was like, no, 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 Stacy, she hasn't been found. Like they didn't have, but I, oh, right, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. And they're kind of looking into both of these a little bit at the same time. But the they didn't look at Kathleen's murder as a murder. They looked at it as an accident so that they didn't collect any evidence. Yeah. Yeah. They were like, well, we don't need to do an investigation because it's an accident. Now, Drew Peterson's attorney says, or they did the investigation right and there's nothing that places Drew there. But I don't think that that's what happened because- I mean, you can go back and look at the case file. So I assume if there was evidence collected, the defense would have been talking about that and been like, well, they collected all this evidence and none of it points to Drew. But they're just saying maybe they did collect evidence and maybe it didn't point to Drew. They're not going to put that in the file. Right, exactly. And everything that Drew has done, nobody looked into it. So yeah, exactly. In April of 2012, an Illinois appellate court ruled that prosecutors could use eight statements made by both the victim prior to her death and by Drew's still missing fourth wife Stacy prior to her disappearance, so they reversed White's earlier decision. Drew's defense had contended that introduction of these alleged hearsay statements constituted a violation of his Sixth Amendment right to confront any witnesses testifying against him. And they actually did something really disgusting too, because they're like during this trial, the defense attorneys were like, you know, leaving the courtroom at some point uh, or the courthouse, and there were um, journalists wanting to talk to him. Of course, you know, everybody's like, hey, 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 and so one of them was like, do you think that you know Stacy's disappearance is going to have an effect on this trial? And for whatever reason, they thought they were being funny, but they were both like, Stacy, who? Who's Stacy? Mm-hmm. Which Stacy? And she was like, his fucking current wife who's missing. And they're like, oh, that's Stacy. No, I don't think so. And they just thought it was really funny to do Stacy, who? That's disgusting. Yeah, it did not go well for them. Literally everything that they did backfired on them spectacularly. It's just a bunch of assholes hanging out with other assholes, I feel like. Mm -hmm. It's just, oh, that's so gross. The Illinois state legislature attempted to help the prosecution with the passage of the new Illinois law, Drew's Law, which allows prosecutors to enter hearsay statements into evidence under certain conditions. Passed while investigators were looking for Stacey, the legislation permits courts to consider statements from the unavailable witnesses, provided that prosecutors are able to prove that the witness was killed to prevent his or her testimony and that the hearsay statements are reliable. Analysis by the the trial court under this new law led to eight out of 14 hearsay statements being ruled inadmissible because they were insufficiently reliable. On appeal, however, the Court of Appeals reversed the trial court, ruling that Drew's law would allow the statements to be admitted. Why did they name it Drew's Law and not like Stacy's Law? Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, maybe just to kind of piss him off. Like maybe you have a law that's going to named after you that actually helped convict you. But yeah, I don't like it, though. I mean, I don't like it. They should have it Stacy's Law. Yeah, that's just kind of weird. On September 6, 2012, Drew was found guilty of the premeditated murder of Kathleen. Jurors admitted that the most compelling evidence was based on the hearsay statements allowed under Drew's law. On February 21st, 2013, Drew was sentenced to 38 years in prison. He was incarcerated at Menard Correctional Center in Chester, Illinois, but was later moved to the federal correctional institution Terre Haute in Terre Haute, Indiana. Within a month, he was attacked by another prisoner who wanted to sell his belongings on eBay. I mean, I hear you can make some money on eBay. Yeah, eBay's a, a lucrative business. And they also tried to make Stacy out as a quote gold digger during this investigation or during this trial, because, you know, they had the statement from the pastor who said that Stacy had told him that she knew how Drew had killed Kathleen. Mm-hmm. And so they tried to tear his statement down by being like, Well, you didn't call police and tell them about that after that happened. And you just let her go back home to this guy who is supposedly dangerous and who she's supposedly in fear of her, you know, life of. Like you didn't recommend her to a a shelter or some other pastor, or parishioner, or somebody that she could go stay with to keep her safe. Like you just let her go back home. And he was like, I mean, I wasn't comfortable with that, but she begged me, you know, she asked me not to do anything with that information. She just needed I guess, to get it off her chest or something like that. Well, so and the, you can't make somebody do something that they don't want to do. Yeah. And they were just like, well, obviously you made this up. And then they also had the statement from her divorce attorney that really soon before she went missing, that she asked if she could get more money, like more money in the divorce If she told police how he killed Kathleen. And so, of course, the defense jumps on that. And so they were trying to make it look like, again, that she was a gold digger, that she was trying to make something up to get more money out of the divorce. So they cross examine this attorney, and he keeps saying, No, she didn't say, If I tell them he killed Kathleen, she says, If I tell them how he killed Kathleen. I know that he killed Kathleen. I'm not making it up. I just want to let them know how it happened. And so that backfired on them too because they were trying to pick his statement apart and be like, well, see, she's making shit up just to get more money. And he was like, nope. The only way that she said it was how he killed Kathleen, not if I say that he killed Kathleen. Right. The defense is disgusting too. Yeah, they're awful. On February 9th, 2015, Drew was charged with attempting to put a $10,000 hit on James Glasgow, the lead prosecutor, in his murder trial, after an inmate tipped off prosecutors to the plan and wore a wire. In May 2016, after less than an hour of deliberations, he was found guilty of solicitation of murder and solicitation of murder for hire. He was sentenced to an additional 40 years in prison. This fucking guy cannot quit fucking up. I know, he just cannot fucking help himself. No. No. After a number of appeals on September 21st, 2017, the Illinois Supreme Court upheld the conviction. In December 2019, Peterson was released from federal custody and transferred to a state facility outside of Illinois. His location is not disclosed for security reasons. When Drew was arrested in 2009, Christopher and Thomas were 14 and 16, while Anthony and Lacey were five and four. With Stacey missing and Drew in prison charged with murder, Stephen, Drew's eldest son from his first wife, Carol, was given custody of all four children. Stephen was a firm believer in his father's innocence. He, along with the children under him, issued a statement in 2009, which read, All of the children of Drew Peterson fully support their father and know that he is innocent of the charges against him. We know him better than anyone else in the world, and we know he is not guilty. Stephen later said, though, that he probably killed Stacy and Kathleen. Well, I watched the I Lived with a Killer, and it was, again, centered around Steven. And he—you can see the difference. I mean, and I don't know him, but it feels like you can see the difference in him when he talks about it now because Mm -hmm. this is a more recent show. But he was, like, you know, talking about all the things that he did with this dad or helped him with or whatever. And he's like, and now I know that he was just trying to get what he wanted. Or now I know that it was probably him trying to manipulate me or whatever, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, yeah. You can see that he's, he's. It, I mean, I can't imagine how many years it takes to process all of that. Well, yeah. And Drew is a very manipulative person. He's a master manipulator. Yeah. And he obviously can get like just about anybody to believe him, at least initially. And he's very charismatic. I mean, he, you know, married several or at least a few women within months of meeting. You know, he's mm-hmm. easily can get people to trust him and like him and all that stuff. So I'm yeah. sure that, obviously, that's going to carry through to his children, too. hmm I mean, it, it works for everybody else. Why wouldn't you do it there, too? Right. Since Stacy's disappearance, her sister Cassandra has continued the search. She also claimed to have located Stacy's body in the bottom of the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal after sonar scanning it in 2007 and 2008. However, divers have been unsuccessful in finding the body. She's an advocate for missing people in her community. Time and again, Cassandra has joined other families who have gone through the same experience as her and have helped them search for their loved ones. By now, Stacey's family believes that Stacy is dead. However, they claim they will not rest until, their, until her remains have been brought back and put to rest. Stacey's sister is still confident about her missing sister's body being at the bottom of the canal and has not given up her efforts to retrieve it. To this day, Drew hasn't been charged in connection with Stacy's disappearance, though authorities have said he's the sole person of interest. Mm. And I mean, he is in prison, you know, at this point for the rest of his life. Right. So he's not going anywhere. So. Yeah. I mean, I do want him to face justice for this. I would like obviously for her family to be able to bury her. Absolutely. But at least he's not going to be able to hurt anybody else. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, guys, that's the case. That's the case. Let us know what you think about it. We'll have some stuff up on the Instagram so you can comment there and, you know, let us know your thoughts. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. Okay, you guys, before we go today, we have some more shout-outs for some of our newest patrons. Yay! Thank you so much to Alexandra Bewley, Maria Legato, Lisa, Carolina Estegaribia? Sorry. Rebecca Gardner, Marissa Flores, Kim Thompson, Brandy, Michelle Miola, Ronnie Merrill, Mariah Burchard, Rebecca Harder, Trina, Alex Shaw, Christy Maddox, Jade McGee, Michaela Kane, and Amy. Thank you guys so much. We love you. Yes, we love you so much. All right. See you next week. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye.